trying to start World War III by whistling down the phone, to teaching your children's toys to swear like a docker, hacking has a long history of strange people doing hilariously dangerous things for profit, effect, or just for the fun of it. And this contrast of the farcical and the serious has been broadly represented in the media, sometimes accurately, sometimes less accurately. In this episode, we explore the seedy, caffeine-fueled underbelly of historical hacking and how it's been represented in films and TV. Like most listeners to this podcast, and to be honest, listeners to any podcast, I spend way too much time faffing about on the internet. And if you're anything like me, you'll probably have either been the target of someone trying to steal your information, or your money, or you know someone who has. These attempts to steal information or money using confidence tricks, fake websites, malicious software, etc, etc, are how most people get introduced to the concept of hacking. Hacking has a lot of definitions, but most involve using technical skills to break into information systems and access sensitive data. But how long has hacking been around for? The colourful history of hacking actually goes back to the late 1800s. Of course, hacking in the 1800s didn't look like the modern version. People were far more smartly dressed for one thing. Reportedly, the first hackers were from the year 1878. When Bell Telephone launched its first phone systems, the company needed people to work the switchboard. And operating a switchboard back then was flipping hard work, because it was exactly what it said on the tin, a board with physical switches. It needed operators who could spend a 12-hour shift standing, stretching, crouching, and plugging up with fairly heavy copper cable. This was a new business, so as well as physically tough, the operators had to be cheap. So, Alexander Graham Bell, in his infinite wisdom, decided to hire teenage boys for the job. Bell had no problem recruiting them, but having a bunch of adolescent boys manage the telephone switchboard went about as well as you'd expect it to. Emily Yellen writes in her book, Your call is not that important to us. The boys occupied themselves by way of wrestling, spitball fights, and beer drinking. They often swore at each other and at their customers. Good to see that teenagers haven't changed. As well as the normal horsing around, the operators figured out how to exploit the switchboard to play practical jokes on the customers. The boys cut calls off mid-sentence. They deliberately crossed lines so that strangers would suddenly find themselves talking to each other, like a 19th century chat roulette. In 1910, the journalist Herbert Casson wrote about Bell's operator problem in his book The History of the Telephone. Between damaging the switchboard, swearing at subscribers, playing tricks with the wires, and roaring on all occasions like young bulls, the boys in the first exchanges did their full share in adding to the troubles of the business. Nothing could be done with them. They were immune to all schemes of discipline. Bell quickly fired its feral troop of operators, but the switchboard wasn't going to operate itself. So that's the reason switchboard operators were mostly women boys immediately took the opportunity to hack the switchboard and were generally ungovernable savages and fairly detrimental to the workplace. It's very common for those new to the field to start by picking a random system and picking it apart just for the challenge of it. And that's how our next subject got started. It was the strange, distant year of 1971. Against this background of flared trousers, brute aftershave and massive lapels, we have the first high-profile example of hacking in the modern era. John Draper, known as Captain Crunch, is a legendary figure within the computer programming world and the hacker and security community. Not always for positive reasons, which we'll discuss later. Captain Crunch was an early member of the Freaking community, spelt with a PH. What the hell is Freaking, I hear you cry. Freaking was a subculture focused on exploring and manipulating the telephone network to make free calls or gain unauthorized access to systems. 
Through some experimentation and tinkering, John learned that playing a tone like this down the phone caused the switches to open up a long distance line for free. That's 2600 Hz if you're technical, or an E if you're musical. He initially used a device he'd built called a blue box to generate the tones needed to exploit the phone network. But he quickly discovered that a high E could be made by a cheap plastic whistle, so he used that instead. The blue box caught the attention of engineering students and future Apple founders Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. A phone freaking business was formed by Woz and Jobs, which provided seed money for the eventual emergence of Apple and, of course, the iPhone. Therefore, because of a cheap plastic whistle and a little blue box, we have the Apple Corporation and the iPhone today. Steve Jobs said in an interview, If it hadn't been for the blue boxes, there would have been no Apple. I'm 100% sure of that. And why is he called Captain Crunch? Well, this clip from 1999's Pirates of Silicon Valley explains it quite well. Well, Steve and I found this weird guy who was a hero around Berkeley, all because he found a way to beat the system. This guy was called Captain Crunch because he figured out this little whistle that you found in boxes of Captain Crunch cereal had the same tones as AT&T's long-distance equipment. So you got free phone calls anywhere in the world with, with, with this thing I built called the Blue Box, and then we tested it out by calling the Pope. You might have noticed that the speaker taking credit for the Blue Box was not Captain Crunch. That's unsurprising because that speech was by Steve Jobs, who had a bit of a track record for pinching other people's ideas. So Crunch went on to have a long and distinguished career, retiring in honour to grow roses, right? Well, no. He now leads a bit of a nomadic lifestyle and has been banned from at least four hacking and security-related conferences for harassing other attendees. A bit of a shameful end for one of the early pioneers of hacking, but sadly all too common behaviour. Right, that's some of the history bit done now, so please relax. How was this weird and exotic activity of hacking being represented in the media? In the early 80s, hacking was a relatively new and unfamiliar concept to mainstream audiences. Early hacking scenes usually involved characters typing furiously on keyboards while navigating neon-lit virtual worlds. And the best and probably earliest example of this is Disney's 1982 film, Tron. Now, although I love this film because I grew up with it, the plot really doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. But it goes a little like this. Kevin Flynn, played by Jeff Bridges, is looking to prove that he invented a hit video game that his former employer, Encom, is taking credit for. He tries to hack into the Encom mainframe, but the evil and tyrannical ruler of the mainframe called the Master Control Program has other ideas. A new recruit. is a tough case, but I want him treated in the usual manner. Train him for the games. Let him hope for a while, and blow him away. You got it. What kind of program is he? He's not any kind of program, Sark. He's a user. A user? That's right. He pushed me in the real world. Poor old Kev gets digitalized by a laser and finds himself inside a neon-soaked version of the mainframe called The Grid. With the help of a security program called Tron, Flynn tries to hack through The Grid in a series of quite odd-looking games. To free it from the MCP? and restore peace and justice to the mainframe. Well, it's an 80s Disney film, so maybe we shouldn't expect Citizen Kane. Despite this, the film still managed to create some really exciting visual representations of hacking, even if they're about as accurate and subtle as a cricket bat to the face. Such as this scene, where Flynn is forced to battle to the death in a light cycle duel. However, because he's so elite, Flynn learns that he can quickly manipulate security controls and escapes into the mainframe to wreak havoc. Three to go, two and one. Getting out of here right now, and you guys are invited. Got it. So long, sucker. 
Overall, Tron presents a stylized and fantastical interpretation of hacking, blending elements of adventure and computer technology to create a unique portrayal of the digital landscape. And while the visuals are definitely of their time, the film's depiction of hacking in 1982 was really groundbreaking, and it has since become a pop culture icon. The following year, a film released that was much more popular with critics, and a huge commercial success too. This, and not Tron, was the film that most people would cite if asked to name an early film actually about hacking. And that film was 1983's War Games. And a promising student. Hi. An old game. Hi. With an electronic twist. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved an F. Do you? You can go to jail for that. Only if you're over 18. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. And I want to play those games. This really should not be confused with the very disturbing 1965 BBC mockumentary, The War Game, which is a whole other thing. Honestly, only watch that if you thought Watership Down was a little bit too light and wholesome. In War Games, the protagonist, David Lightman, played by Matthew Broderick, is a young computer hacker. Lightman, while mucking about on the Stone Age version of the internet, believes he has hacked into a computer game company to play an unreleased game called Global Thermonuclear War. However, he's actually unwittingly connected with the War Operations Plan Response, or WAPA, which is a military supercomputer that simulates real-world scenarios for military training. Hilarity ensues. Wow! What? We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in! But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? I can't ask you that! How about global thermal nuclear war? Fine. Did I say hilarity? I meant high-octane nightmare fuel. The movie portrays Lightman's journey as he unwittingly starts playing a pretend nuclear war on the supercomputer he's just hacked into. Trouble is, the people in charge think it's for real, and the whole mess starts a countdown to a potential nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Again, it was the 80s, so nuclear war was a common theme. The depiction of hacking in war games reflects popular understanding of the technology of the 1980s. But, unlike Tron, there was a small grain of reality in some of the techniques shown. For example... What are you doing? Dialing into the school's computer. They change the password every couple of weeks, but I know where they write it down. The film captures the intrigue and fascination surrounding hacking, while also highlighting the potential dangers associated with unauthorized access to sensitive systems. All in all, depictions of hacking in the 80s relied heavily on the audience being unfamiliar with how security actually worked. And although some films did make a nod towards realism, they tended to focus more on the thrill of hacking, rather than accurately representing real-world hacking techniques. The next big step change in hacking, and its representation, came along after the rise of the internet. Depending on your age, you might remember a time before the internet was available in your pocket 24 hours a day. Maybe you grew up in a house with a dial-up internet connection that cost you a penny a minute, and that your mum booted you off when she needed to use the phone. So let's cast our minds back to the ancient and hallowed year of our Lord. 1989. Until this point, data connectivity was only really available to very serious organisations like the government and universities. However, in 1989, the first internet service providers started offering connections to the home. Imagine a world where every word ever written Every picture ever painted and every film ever shot could be viewed instantly in your home via an information superhighway. 
It sounds pretty grand. And in fact, that's already happening on something called the internet, that anyone in the world with a computer and a modem to connect it to a telephone line can subscribe to. At the time though, it was mostly bulletin boards, pictures of dinosaurs and the odd cookie recipe. Internet connections gradually became more popular in the early 90s as more and more content was created and connections got cheaper. And the internet allowed hackers to launch attacks from anywhere in the world, transcending geographical boundaries. And a great example of this increased connectivity and a shrinking borderless world is the 1994 Citibank hack. This is a story about the crime of the future committed now. It is a bizarre tale of how a Russian mathematical genius broke into Citibank, the world's largest bank, through cyberspace, and then sold the secret of how to do it for a hundred dollars and a couple of bottles of vodka. This mild-mannered, unassuming computer programmer was from St. Petersburg in Russia. Using only his office computer, he used Citibank's dial-up wire transfer service to snag a list of codes and passwords for accounts held by corporate customers. All told, he siphoned off $10.7 million before anyone even noticed. This was probably the first successful penetration into the banking systems that transfer trillions of dollars a day all around the globe. And as a result, the story made its way into actual newspapers like the New York Times. And because of this, the idea of hacking as some countercultural thing you did on computers started to make its way into the public consciousness. This moment not only captured the attention of the world, but it caught the attention of many young people who then went on to a career in cybersecurity. But one individual had already cut his teeth before this, and was already well on the way to becoming the world's most wanted hacker, Kevin Condor Mitnick. Here he is in his own words. Back in the 1990s, I was the world's most wanted hacker. So I was being chased by the FBI, the US Marshal Service. I became involved in hacking for the intellectual curiosity. You know, I was arrested in 1995. I was released in 2000, so that was five years without using a computer. Kevin Mitnick would end up spending five years in prison for various crimes, including eight months in isolation. Why so much time in isolation? because someone convinced the judge that he was capable of initiating a nuclear war by whistling on a public telephone. Mitnick had already done time for various crimes previously, but his arrest and prosecution in 1995 was far higher profile, partly due to the Citibank breach the year before. As well as further raising the profile of computer security, it introduced the public at large to new hacking concepts, like exploitation of vulnerabilities, and this was exactly what Mitnick did when he hacked into Pacific Bell's voicemail computers. Here he is in his own words again. When I was a federal fugitive, I was really concerned, obviously, about getting arrested. So what I did is I hacked into the cell phone company, one of the cell phone companies in Los Angeles, all the FBI cell phone numbers of the people that were in charge of my investigation would start sending me pager alerts that the FBI cell phones here, you know, in, you know within a mile. As the internet became more prevalent in the 1990s, films started incorporating hacking into their narratives. The rise of hackers you could actually name conducting attacks against large, wired-up banks and communications companies translated into movies about hacking becoming a little more cyberpunk. Characters started being shown as rebellious, countercultural individuals with impressive computer skills. But most importantly, hackers were consistently shown as being the good guys, fighting the good fight against some evil corporation or organisation. And one of the first examples of this grungy cyberpunk representation is 1995's Hackers. They're hackers. Hackers penetrate and ravage private and publicly owned computer systems. They can crack any code and get inside any system, but this time they just hacked the wrong guy. Game's over. 
The film follows Dade Murphy, aka Crash Override, a brilliant high school hacker. Alongside his hacker crew, he encounters Kate Libby, aka Acid Burn, a formidable hacker with a fierce attitude. As the story unfolds, the hackers uncover a dark corporate conspiracy orchestrated by Eugene the Plague Belford, a malevolent computer genius. With their freedom at stake, can Crash Override and Acid Burn rally their team to beat the plague and elude the FBI agent hot on their trail? Well, you'll just have to watch it to find out. Hackers is notable for being one of the first mainstream films to even acknowledge any sort of real-world hacking techniques. Pretty much all of the prep work for the big hack at least nods towards realism. All right, what are the huh? three most common used passwords? Love, secret, and uh, sex. But not in that order, necessarily, right? Yeah, but don't forget God. System operators love to use God. It's a whole male ego the team also do realistic things like dumpster diving to look for discarded printouts. Although this film's a lot of fun and does contain a smattering of realism, Hackers is one of those films that even if you think you haven't seen it, you probably actually have from the sheer amount of tropes and memes it's responsible for. One example of this is the common theme of people having an internet handle to preserve their privacy. Completely ridiculous and weird. It's also an early showing for tropes like scrolling green text, security staff typing and shouting angrily, and any successful attack featuring a malicious and or cute animation that's displayed while they're mucking about in the system. Such as this scene where a certain famous Sesame Street monster gets to eat up memory like delicious chocolate chip cookies. I'm not going to say their name though, because Sesame Street's lawyers are no joke. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. I'll head him off at the pass. We have a zero bug attacking on login and overlay files. Run antivirus. Give me a systems display. Die, dickweeds. This film is a great example of hackers being misunderstood good guys. Starring Angelina Jolie in her first major film role as Acid Burn and Penn Jillette of all people on the IT help desk, Hackers is a great slice of 90s fun and gets referenced in a lot of depictions of information security today. For example, the phrase Fight the planet! is from the film and it crops up everywhere from tabletop role-playing games to Commonwealth environmental competitions to an Xbox achievement on Overwatch. This film's very fast-paced and it is a visually stunning experience and it has an absolutely fantastic EDM and house soundtrack and that really was an early showing for movies at the time. It explores themes of rebellion, friendship and the uncharted landscape of the early internet. And speaking of rebellion and gratuitous use of banging tunes, Hacker's influence on the genre is crystal clear in our next film. The cinematic landscape of 1999 was very different from today. It had been a while since audiences saw a massive action film that got everyone talking. They'd kind of gone at a fashion a little. Then, out of nowhere, two little-known directors released a movie unlike anything anyone had seen before. Whoa. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The shock 1999's The Matrix caused on its release really can't be overstated. The Wachowskis blended sci-fi, action, philosophy and martial arts with a ridiculously fresh soundtrack to a scale that just hadn't been done before. It also came with a premise that fascinated everyone, especially with the terrifyingly futuristic year 2000 looming. The plot is probably simpler than the writing and philosophical ramblings make it sound. Set in a dystopian future, the story revolves around a hacker called Thomas Anderson, also known as Neo, 
Sadly for Neo, the world he thinks is real is actually a simulated virtual reality known as The Matrix. This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call The Matrix. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Neo's life takes a bit of a left turn at the traffic lights when he encounters a group of rebels led by Morpheus, who believes that Neo is a legendary hero called The One, who can free humanity from its fake existence. Morpheus offers Neo a choice, to continue living in the comfortable but deceptive Matrix, or to join the Rebellion and fight against the machines. And obviously the directors choose to do it through heavy-handed symbolism. This is your last chance. After this there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. That's right my friends, lay that metaphor on thick. Now I remember watching this film at the cinema in 1999. I genuinely had no idea what I'd just watched. But one thing was clear, hackers, again, were being portrayed as good guys using their powers to bring down an evil empire. Hacking in the Matrix is portrayed as a digital form of exploration and rebellion against the system. Neo and other characters like Trinity and Morpheus use their hacking skills to enter the Matrix, and once there, they can manipulate its code, bend the rules of physics a little, and even access restricted areas. This is a sparring program, similar to the programmed reality of the Matrix. It has the same basic rules, rules like gravity. What you must learn is that these rules are no different than the rules of a computer system. Some of them can be bent, others can be broken. Understand? And within the Matrix, our heroes can actually manipulate the virtual environment, override security systems, and acquire information or tools to aid their resistance against the machines. Unfortunately, and as always, there's a catch. The heroes have to deal with the Matrix's defense mechanisms, antivirus programs known as agents. They can move in and out of any software still hardwired to their system. Inside the Matrix, they are everyone and they are no one. I've seen an agent punch through a concrete wall. Men have emptied entire clips at them and hit nothing but air. Yet their strength and their speed are still based in a world that is built on rules. Because of that, they will never be as strong or as fast as you can be. It's slightly depressing to think that this film came out nearly 25 years ago. And although some of the technology looks a little bit dated, it's a fairly typical example of hackers being depicted as cool anti-heroes. And again, hacking being depicted through visual metaphor that is more interested in drama than accuracy. As well as being a critical hit, it was also hugely popular. This popularity meant there were some high quality follow-up video games and a really entertaining animated series called The Animatrix. And despite any rumors you've heard, the Wachowskis were not actually given a blank check to write three bloated, self-indulgent and silly sequels. The Matrix stands alone as an unsullied, single and perfect film. Please don't tell me otherwise. We're into the noughties now and one historical event dominates this decade. That event is 9-11 and there's a reason it was my first episode. So many plots in this period had terrorism as a central theme, but there was the odd film that actually used hacking instead. Obviously the hacking was for doing terrorism though, it was the noughties after all. One example of this hybrid approach is 2007's Die Hard 4.0, also known as Live Free or Die Hard. It's a fire sale. 
it's a three-step systematic attack on the entire national infrastructure. Okay, step one, take out all the transportation. Step two, the financial base and telecoms. Step three, get rid of all the utilities, gas, water, electric, nuclear, pretty much anything that's run by computers, which, which today is almost everything. So that's why they call it a fire sale, because everything must go. All in all, the film emphasized the power of hacking to control systems and manipulate reality, blurring the line between the virtual and physical worlds. As well as 9-11, there was a huge increase in security incidents in the 90s and the noughties that started to actually affect normal people. People started to realize that maybe these incidents weren't all caused by a bunch of digital Robin Hoods fighting the good fight against greedy corporations. One example of this is the I Love You Worm in May 2000. Although this was by no means the first computer worm, context is really important here. Email was already a really important tool for communication and collaboration in many companies and government agencies, as well as for ordinary home users. So, imagine it's just another day at the office. You turn on your beige desktop and access your Yahoo Mail account. You immediately notice a strange email with the subject line, I love you. Sadly, it looks like nothing happens when you open the letter. Looks like you'll be dying alone and unloved after all. However, sometime later you discover that important documents on your hard disk have been irreparably corrupted, and a bunch of similar love letters have been sent out on your behalf, to all of the contacts in your address book. 20 years on, the I Love You Worm remains one of the most significant cyber attacks ever. Tens of millions of computers around the world were affected, including the FBI, the CIA, and the UK Parliament. The really funny thing about this is the Filipino creator of the I Love You virus, Onel de Guzman, says he only did it so he could steal passwords and access the internet for free. I hacked it together when I was a computer science student in Manila in 2000. It was mostly to steal dial-up passwords, which you needed to get online at the time. I decided to call it I Love You, which has global appeal. I figured out that many people want a boyfriend, they want each other, they want love, so I called it that. The fight to contain the malware and track down its author was front-page news globally. And this was one of the first security incidents that really got the attention of the general public. People were starting to realize that this stuff was an actual problem. And as well as affecting normal people, hackers were now starting to go after what might be called the good guys. Hacking has always attracted strange people and ne'er-do-wells. And one example of this is Scottish hacker Gary McKinnon, who went by the handle Solo. He was accused of hacking several US military computers in 2001 and 2002. McKinnon allegedly wanted to know what the government knew about UFOs and anti-gravity technology and the suppression of free energy. You know, all the stuff the army are keeping in a big warehouse near Area 51. Now at this point, the military were already engaged in Afghanistan. And as a result of this, McKinnon was not portrayed favorably in the media. An official statement was released. US policy is to fight these attacks as strongly as possible. This was not some harmless incident. Hacking wasn't just people mucking about anymore the general public were getting an awareness that this stuff was becoming a genuine problem. Now, like a lot of transitions in the noughties, media about hacking became notably darker and edgier, and hackers themselves started being portrayed as, at the very least, morally questionable. Which brings us to our next film, 2001's Swordfish. Ever heard of Operation Swordfish? Going over the phone lines, pop the fire on, sit back, wait for the money. So what we need from you, Stanley, is a worm. I have been told that the best crackers in the world can do this in 60 minutes. Unfortunately, I need someone who can do it in 60 seconds. You're kidding. Go! Swordfish is an action film centered around skilled hacker named Stanley Jobson, played by Hugh Jackman of all people. This was before he got massively jacked playing Wolverine, so he could still credibly play an IT professional. 
Now I'm going to go on record here and say that Swordfish isn't a great film. It's not really a film with a huge amount of rewatch value. Even if you consider the popular cast members like Hal Berry, Hugh Jackman, John Travolta and Vinnie Jones apparently. However, one thing it does portray is the morally grey nature of a lot of hacking. Although Stan's motivation is portrayed as a better life for his daughter, ultimately he's part of a multinational band of crooks that hack into the DEA's secret slush fund and relieve the US government of billions of dollars. Ultimately, the film asks questions about the morality of hacking and the lengths people are willing to go to to achieve their goals. The accounts are encrypted with a 1,024-bit cipher. Even I can't break through the firewall. So here's the deal. You let the hostages go and I'll tell you where and when you can extract the money. We all walk away, nobody gets hurt. No deal. Get Ginger. String her up. Stop. No, don't do this. No, wait, wait, no. No, don't do this. Okay. Hope you built in the back door. It blurs the line between hero and villain, and it's certainly an experience to watch it after watching something a bit simpler like Hackers. This ambiguous presentation made a lot of sense in the context of the amount of very public real-world activity aimed at the good guys. And this trend definitely continued as we move on from the 2000s. And here we are, finally arriving in the modern world of Wi-Fi, TikTok and doom scrolling. From 2008 onwards, smartphones really started to take off and being permanently connected to 7 billion other humans started to become the norm for most people. And by most people, I really do mean most people. By 2013, according to the United Nations, 6 of the world's 7 billion people had mobile phones. It really has ushered in a peaceful era of humanity cooperating to work together for the good of all. It's not all been sunshine and fluffy kittens though. The level of connectivity meant that security breaches became even more common, and we also started to see hacking used as a tool for international politics. There have been countless examples of data breaches and attacks from 2008 onwards. I'm fairly sure you've been a target of one, or possibly a victim if you're unlucky. I could use serious examples such as Russia breaching an insecure email server to influence the US election, or silly examples such as when Germany told parents to bin a talking doll because some UK researchers taught it to swear for fun. We're Pentest partners, we're a team of Pentesters. Now we're going to talk about BYOD. BYOD actually stands for Break Your Offspring's Doll. What we wanted to know was whether we could make my friend Kayla swear. Now, she's got swearing filters in place. So Ian, how do you go about breaking her and making her cuss like a trooper? We need to be able to get the database that Kayla uses off so we can then look at it and start to edit it. We'll have a go. Hello, Kayla. Hey, calm down or I will kick the shit out of you. <laughs> but I'd like to focus on two examples which illustrate the changing nature of hacking and how they're represented in modern media. The first event I'm going to talk about is one that a lot of industry professionals feel was the first computerized shot of a new type of hybrid warfare. From the invention of gunpowder in 900 AD to the invention of the A-bomb in 1945, humans excel at a lot of things, but one thing they're really good at is killing other humans and breaking their stuff. But what if you could ruin your enemy's day, all without leaving the office, and be home in time for cornflakes? Well, that's exactly what happened when somebody wrote and deployed Stuxnet against Iran in 2008. Someone sabotaged a top-secret nuclear installation in Iran with nothing more than a long string of computer code. We have entered into a new phase of conflict in which we use a cyber weapon to create physical destruction. Since the Iranian Revolution in 1979 deposed the Western-backed king, Iran's foreign policy goal has been to resist foreign influence. And the absolute best way of resisting foreign influence is to become the biggest, meanest power in the region. In 2008, Iran was busy working on a nuclear weapon. 
it had been on their bucket list for quite a while and it still is today. Iran having the bomb is great for Iran, for literally everyone else, less so. And this is where Stuxnet comes in. This was a computer worm designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is ruin Iran's nuclear program. Specifically, it was written to destroy the centrifuges Iran was using to make material for the bomb. Stuxnet itself was designed to spread between computers like wildfire, but only be harmful when it detected an attached centrifuge. It was incredibly finely crafted, and it would only cause havoc if it detected hardware of the right type and serial number known to be used by Iran. This wasn't a shotgun, it was more like a marksman's rifle, and it was far more sophisticated than anything that had been previously seen. And once it detected the right attached hardware, it would spin at just the wrong speed, just enough to damage it irreparably, all while telling the operator everything was a-okay. All told, Stuxnet damaged over a thousand centrifuges and it set the Iranian nuclear program back by about two years. Although the technology is impressive, this isn't why Stuxnet is important. Stuxnet is significant because it represented the first widely recognized intrusion of computer code into the world of international conflict, an idea that had previously been in the realm of sci-fi. And this level of real-world impact had a huge impact on the portrayal of hacking in the media. This wasn't just a toy anymore. And as for who done it? I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. So that's a super high-level attack with real-world life and death impact. Stuxnet was reasonably high-profile. But unless people were into the geopolitics and balance of power in the Middle East and Asia, they might not have noticed. But there is one thing that everyone understands, loves, and can't get enough of. And it's something that happens in darkened rooms, occasionally with an audience, and was very popular during lockdown. I am, of course, talking about the movie industry. In 2014, Sony Pictures released a comedy called The Interview. Every night, millions of people watch our show. I just want to cover actual news. Kim Jong-un wants to do an interview. He's a fan! Look at him! If that ain't a real story, what is? Okay, let's do it. Mr. Rappaport, I'm Agent Lacey with Central Intelligence. You two are going to be in a room alone with Kim. We got the interview! The CIA would love it if you could take him out. You want us to kill the leader of North Korea? Yes. Comedy's a really loose term. Please don't start with me. I sat through this atrocity, and believe me, it sat at 52 on Metacritic for a damn good reason. This movie includes a fairly spicy scene where Kim is burned to a crisp when his helicopter explodes. North Korea had been complaining about this movie for months, including moaning to the UN that the film sponsored terrorism. And since nothing upsets nutters more than being laughed at, a group of hackers calling themselves the Guardians of Peace took matters into their own hands. When Sony staff arrived at work on November the 24th, 2014, they discovered that their corporate network had been hacked. They also leaked thousands of confidential documents, including some really spicy emails from executives where they called Angelina Jolie a minimally talented spoiled brat and talking about whether President Obama liked Django Unchained or not. They emailed Western reporters the following chilling message. We will clearly show it to you at the very time and places the interview be shown, including the premiere, how bitter fate those who seek fun in terror should be doomed to. Remember the 11th of September 2001. Serious business, I'm sure you'd agree. Well, Sony and a lot of cinema chains were pretty spooked by these threats and they started reducing promotion and even started pulling the film. President Obama was made of sterner stuff though. He indicated that the US shouldn't kowtow to terrorists. If somebody is able to intimidate folks out of releasing a satirical movie, imagine what they start doing when they see a documentary they don't like or news reports they don't like. Faced with the boss calling them a chicken, Sony announced that they'd still release the film to independent theatres and streaming services. 
and Sony were actually back up and running pretty quickly. Nothing got seriously broken, but I've included it because it was something that really caught the attention of the world. Not everyone cares about information security, but most people like movies and have heard of Sony, and everyone loves gossip. The leaked emails had some seriously unflattering comments about celebrities, racial biases, and internal squabbling. And it was that aspect of the breach that generated significant public interest. The incident actually sparked debates on privacy, corporate culture, and accountability, which is not bad going for a dump of a few emails. So there are a couple of things in the public consciousness from 2008 onwards. Firstly, it's that hacking is now a serious threat to nations and is used as a policy tool. And secondly, it's that hacking is now something that affects absolutely everybody. So, how has this affected portrayals in the media? More people than ever now know roughly what hacking is, so directors can't get away with two people flailing wildly at a keyboard, like in this legendary scene from NCIS. No way! I'm getting hacked! They've already burned through the NCIS public firewall. Well, isolate the node and dump them on the other side of the router. I'm trying, it's moving too fast. Oh, this is not good. Movies and TV have begun to depict hacking much more authentically, drawing inspiration from real-world hacking techniques and consulting with security experts. The portrayal of hacking continued to shift towards grey area characters with complex motivations, and a really good example of this realism and ethical compromise could be seen in 2015's Black Hat. The moment you connect, you lose control. I can target anyone, anything, anywhere. They're moving the money. No fingerprints, no trace, no mercy. When a series of high-profile cyber attacks disrupt financial markets and cause havoc worldwide, the American and Chinese governments join forces to track down the mysterious hacker responsible. The movie follows a skilled hacker named Nicholas Hathaway, who's played by Chris Hemsworth. He's serving a prison sentence for various forms of cybercrime. In order to catch the person responsible for the attacks, the authorities decide to enlist Hathaway's help due to his exceptional hacking skills. Now you're probably thinking to yourself that this sounds like the unholy love child of Swordfish and The Rock. The film, not the wrestler. And you're not completely wrong. Frankly, it's not the greatest film in the world. It's mostly pretty disappointing, especially since the director, Michael Mann, also directed 1995's Heat, which is one of the best heist movies of all time. However, just like in Heat, Mann really likes to get his subject matter right. He did this by extensive consultation with subject matter experts, including former hacker Kevin Paulson. This was a guy who once hacked into the FBI and also hacked a radio station to win a Porsche 944, so he knew his stuff. The result of this was that when Black Hat was screened to a room full of cybersecurity experts, most agreed that it was the most accurate depiction of hacking they'd seen in a film. Kevin Mahaffey, chief technical officer of security company Lookout, explains. The hacks in the movie relied on humans being the weak link. For example, they'll send someone infected documents and get them to open it. That's one of the top ways cyber criminals get into private and government organizations. Now, while there's still a little use of artistic license with graphics and so on, the film is mostly pretty well researched, and it also addresses the morally grey nature of hacking. Black Hat had other important accuracies, such as depicting hackers as not all good or all bad, but on a spectrum. The good hackers or white hats look for weaknesses in systems so they can help governments and corporations strengthen their security. The bad hackers or black hats look to exploit weaknesses for criminal activities. Yes, describing security experts as being on a spectrum happens quite a lot. The realism and the ethical questions only really worked though because the audience now had a little familiarity with the subject matter. 
Lessons in information security aside, Mahaffey hopes that the audience will take away a more important, if slightly questionable, message. I hope that people take away that all hackers look like Chris Hemsworth. I'm going to finish on perhaps the best depiction of information security and hacking to have been made, ever. And while it's not everyone's cup of tea for reasons that we'll come to, it won an absolute raft of awards, including three Emmys and two Golden Globes, 2015's Mr. Robot. The show follows the story of Elliot Alderson, played by Rami Malek in full awkward weirdo mode. Employee number ER280652, just a regular cybersecurity engineer, but I'm a vigilante hacker by night. I usually do this kind of thing from my computer, but this time I wanted to do it in person. I started intercepting all the traffic on your network. That's when I noticed something strange. That's when I decided to hack you. Plagued by severe social anxiety, depression, and dissociative identity disorder, Elliot struggles to connect with others and find solace in his hacking activities. Elliot is approached by the mysterious anarchist known as Mr. Robot, played by Christian Slater of all people. Mr. Robot recruits Elliot into a hacker group called F Society. Their goal? is to take down the powerful conglomerate E-Corp. Evil Corp, the largest conglomerate in the world. A monster of modern society. The top 1% of the top 1%, the guys that play God without permission. And now I think they're following me. As Elliot becomes increasingly involved with F-Society, he tumbles further and further down the rabbit hole and starts to question his own sanity. He experiences vivid hallucinations and conversations with his alter ego, Mr. Robot, who may or may not be a figment of his imagination. Adding further confusion, Elliot's sister Darlene is also a member of F-Society. She's played to absolutely great effect here by Carly Chulkin, and she'd only really been known for starring in Suburgatory previously. Unlike Christian Slater though, she plays someone who definitely exists, I think. The unreliable narrator aspect of this show is one of the things that makes it absolutely brilliant, but also very, very unsettling. In particular, Christian Slater's character, Mr. Robot, almost feels to Elliot like Gollum is to Smeagol in Lord of the Rings. The only reason I'm here is to make sure no one ever hurts you. That was supposed to be your father's job, but he failed. He brought me here to protect you from him. But one thing this show does get nearly 100% right is its depiction of hacking and it somehow makes the subject exciting. And as a listener to this episode, you can probably appreciate just how difficult that is. For example, its portrayal of social engineering, also known as confidence tricks, is incredibly accurate, and the show demonstrates just how common they are as part of an attack. Hi, this is Sam from Bank of E-Security Fraud Department. Unfortunately, I have to inform you that your account's been compromised. What? What happened? First, before I can answer any questions, I need to verify some information. Are you still at 306 Hawthorne Avenue? Yes, uh, apartment 2C. Great. And your security question, favorite baseball team? Um, Yankees. Who am I speaking to? Can I get your name and number? With those details, plus a dictionary brute force attack, it'll take my program maybe two minutes to crack his password. Elliot also uses realistic tools to conduct attacks. Tools like Kali Linux and Wireshark. He also uses some very dry-looking interfaces, like the command line interface, basically just typing to make his system perform commands. This really adds to the authenticity of the portrayal, as real-world hackers and security professionals often use interfaces and tools like this for their activities. As a show, Mr. Robot skillfully delves into the ethical dilemmas surrounding activism, hacking, and the 
somewhat blurry line between good and evil. And the exploration of Elliot's mental state and the blurring of reality really adds an extra layer of intrigue and suspense. It really is a standout achievement in the realm of television, and Rami Malek as Elliot carries all before him. Which he proved further when he went on to own the screen as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody, completely inhabiting the artist responsible for revolutionising stadium rock and artistic expression in music videos. But that's a story for another time. That's all for this week, my friends. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed writing it. If you did enjoy it, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you have comments, ideas, or you're a Nigerian prince with a suspiciously good deal for me, please tweet to Pod or culturechronicles at outlook.com. I'm Khan and I've been your host. Stay safe and have a story-filled week. This computer is a dedicated interface with a highly developed security protocol. The information we are accessing is stored on a separate database with its own dedicated hardware. So, any suggestions? Oh yeah, I've seen that before. You should try uploading a virus to the mainframe. I find viruses that feature a laughing skull tend to work the best. Shut the f*** up and let me work!